Well, this morning we are in Revelation chapter 20. And um, last week, because we were online, we did things a little bit differently. Uh, We just walked through sort of as a Bible study in chapter 19, and we talked about that rider on the white horse, the second coming. This morning we're going to be going through chapter 20, which is talking about probably, if it's not the most controversial passage in the Bible, it's at least in the top five. We're going to be talking about the millennium. And so I'm going to give just a a brief rundown of some of the views, uh, just so that you're aware, and then I'm going to kind of stake my claim on where I stand, at least for this Sunday. Next Sunday, it may be different based upon reading and prayer and just uh, enlightenment and those sorts of things, Um, because uh, this has been a struggle, honestly, for the last 2,000 years, what uh, readers Uh, how they interpret this text, but we're going to make our way through this. Um, Would you pray with me as I open us up and uh, we open up Revelation chapter 20. Father, be with us this morning on this difficult passage. It's a glorious passage, but difficult to understand, to interpret, to grasp. And Father, I pray that uh, while there are many different interpretations and how to understand this text, that um, that we we would see that the, the, the main point, the main point is that Satan and evil and sin cannot stand in the presence of Christ. Uh, that they will be defeated, they will be cast down, and believers whose names have been written in the book of life from before Time will reign with Jesus forever. Lord, we thank you and we love you, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I don't know about you, but one of my favorite and at the same time least favorite things to watch on the internet, usually it's social media, usually it's Facebook, is are the videos of military personnel coming home to their families. Now, it's my favorite because they're very sweet. They're usually very emotional as the father or the mother who's been gone for a period of time, you know, somehow surprised the family. They weren't expecting them during that time. And they surprised them and there's usually this big hoopla and everybody, you know, crying, including the person watching the video. And that's why it's some of my least favorite because they are so emotional and I can't help it that all of a sudden I start weeping. I'm like, that's so beautiful. Um, and it never fails. It could be the, just the, the, goofiest, the goofiest one of all. And it's just, you know, seeing those kids. I watched one the other day where a, a dad came home uh, earlier than expected but the son, who was probably, I don't know, maybe nine or ten years old, was sound asleep, and he didn't want to wake him up that evening. And so uh, the next morning, the child was still asleep, and the dad kind of shook him, and the son didn't know what was going on. He shook him again. I practically had to dump water on the kid's head to wake him up. And uh, finally, the kid woke up, and the kid just looked at him for a minute, like, what is going on? And then you could see that moment where it dawned on the child that this was his father. And the kid just fell apart, just falls apart. 
And you know, and I'm sitting there like, that's amazing. It's amazing right there. You know, and so um, anyway, so those videos, and, and it dawned on me this morning as we're talking about the millennium that everybody's wondering, you know, the, the, the biggest uh, controversy, if you want to call it a controversy, and when I say controversy, these are like second or third tier controversies. Depending on how you, how you interpret this text does not make or break your faith, okay? So if you say, and I'll explain this in a minute, but if you say, well, I'm a historic premillennialist, or if somebody else says, well, I'm an amillennialist, that doesn't mean you don't have, you're not saved one way or the other. It just means that you have a different way of interpreting that, uh, that text. So these are second or third tier controversies we're talking about. But the way this controversy uh, works is... When does Christ come? When does he actually arrive in the second coming? Does he come before the millennium, all right, this thousand-year reign? Does it happen after the millennium, right? Or is there a millennium at all, or is this all symbolic, all right? So that's kind of where it stands. The most important thing to know here is that Christ is coming, that's the main point. And so we get all caught up in when, and the when really doesn't matter. The win is that the point is that Jesus is coming. There is going to be a second coming, and that's for us to celebrate. And that's what I was thinking about these military personnel coming home is that, is that families may not, they have sometimes a, gen, a general time when they, when they know that uh, their, their family members may be coming home, but that's not probably as important as knowing that they will come home, right? That's what they want to know, that their family members are going to come home. It may not be for a period of time, but they will get to see them again as we will get to see Christ again. And so we're going to walk through the millennial, uh, this millennial passage here. In fact, in your Bibles and in mine, it, say, it likely will say the thousand years, if you will. And I'm going to explain what that means and, and how different individuals have interpreted that over the years. So if you'll follow me, we're going to go all the way through chapter 20, but I'm going to start with just the first six verses, which focus on the, uh, the uh, inaug inauguration of that thousand years. It says, Then I saw, now this is John, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and the great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, <coughs> so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that... He must be released for a little while. Then I saw the throne, I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their forehead on their, or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, this is really an odd passage. And so I just kind of want you to hang with me for a minute 
and I don't want you to get caught up in all this muck and this academic interpretation, but I do believe that it's important for you all to know this part. And by the way, I have spared you a lot of sort of the academic rigor that has gone into this text just because for two reasons. Number one, I didn't think it was pertinent to the main point of the passage, but also there's some of it I don't get. I'm like looking, I'm like, really? Really? You all are fighting over that, over the word and? All right, so anyway. Um, but this is important because we have, it, it is, it's kind of taken a seminal place in our society. And it even boils down to that concept of the rapture. So many of us grew up thinking that there was going to be a day that where a husband was looking for his wife in the supermarket or in Walmart, and he could not find her anyway, anywhere, that he got left behind and that he was just going to file a pile of her clothes laying around, right? All right, so that's what was kind of in our mind. And don't, don't fib, you know you've been there, right? Even if you don't believe in the rapture, I don't believe in the rapture, but there have been times where I've been looking, at my, looking for my wife and I can't find her. I was like, I really did get left behind. The Lord took her and left me behind. And it just turns out that she was hiding behind a pole. But anyway, and so, so not hard for her to do, but... So let's talk a little bit about this thousand years. There are four major views, four major views, and I'm going to go from the, uh, the least uh, plausible to the most plausible, okay? The first one is the, is the post-millennial view, okay? The post-millennial view, and what that means, it's real simple, it means that Christ, the second coming, is going to come after the millennial reign. That Jesus is not going to come until after the millennial reign. And what that means is that there is going to be this great, uh, uh, great experience of peace on earth through this thousand years, that things are going to continue to get better and better and better and better, and then Christ is going to come. Okay, that's called the post-millennial view. And that was somewhat popular in the 19th century, all right, not widely held, but, but somewhat popular in the 19th century, right around the turn of the century into the 20th century when we experienced World War I and World War II. And then people kind of got it in their heads, things are not getting better. This, this post-millennial view does not hold water. Things are not getting better. And I think the majority of us would not look at our society and our culture right now and say, oh yeah, things are improving as we speak, Right. And so the post-millennial view kind of went wayward a long time ago. Not many people hold that today. The people that hold that are just, they're cranky. That's all they are. They're just cranky and they just want to be, they want to be uh, nonconformists, if you will. So that's the first view. The second view is called, okay, hang with me, dispensational premillennialism. That's a word for you, right? If you all have read the Left Behind books, that's what that is, okay? That's dispensational premillennialism. And all that means is this. It means that, first of all, there's a rapture, that God is going to come, that Christ is going to come in like a pre-second coming, second coming, and he's going to take the church, all right? He's going to rapture the church before the tribulation, and then all that those who are left will get an opportunity to convert to Christ, and this is also going to be a time where many of the Jews that have been appointed to salvation will turn their lives over for, to Christ. And so it has a very prominent place for, the, for ethnic Jews. 
That's called dispensational premillennialism. And then after the tribulation, after that seven-year period, and remember, that's where all the dates really matter, then Christ is going to really come, and then the millennium will take place after that, and there will be a thousand-year reign. And they look at that thousand-year reign as a very literal way. That has kind of gone by the wayside as well. Now, there are several that still preach it. Um, there are several that still teach it. I remember going through a revelation class at my former church before I was in the ministry, and I went back there, and I listened to this fella who was an expert in revelation, and he was basically reciting all 50 books of Left Behind. And it just something just didn't fit with me very well, and so I didn't go back. That view has kind of gone by the wayward side as well. The last two, real quick, that I will mention are the most prominent, and these are the ones where the majority of conservative evangelicals stand today. Uh, the first is called historic premillennialism, and what that means is that Christ is going to come before the millennium. It is the most, what I would say, natural chronological reading of the text. And so we read in chapter 19 where the rider on the white horse is coming, and then there's a thousand-year reign, right? It makes sense that there's going to be this, that Christ would come before the millennium. It just kind of makes sense. But that there's no rapture, we, the church still rides through the tribulation, okay? Um, and then Christ comes right there at the end of that tribulation, and then there's going to be this thousand-year reign of peace. It doesn't have to be a literal thousand years. It could be more symbolic, just like a long time. But the millennium has not occurred yet, all right? So that's historic premillennialism. And then there is what's called amillennialism. And it literally means no millennium, that there's no millennium, which many people who follow amillennialism, and that would be me, all right, uh, we take, we take uh, umbrage at that because we do believe, it's a bad name actually is what it is, because we do believe there's a millennium, but it's not a literal millennium, all right? It's a symbolic period. And that's where I fit, okay? And that's where I fit, and that's where I'm going to be interpreting this. And what this means is, is that... There is this period of time, all right, there's this period of time, and it's from the resurrection on, okay, where, the, where Satan has been bound, okay? And I'm going to explain that during this time, but there's not really a millennium per se, it's that Christ is just, just going to come, all right? And there's not a, really a millennium that we're counting on or anything like that, uh, that, is, that is in a literal sense. So what I want to do is I want to explain it from, this, uh, from that perspective, um, and then we'll go from there. Now, if you could done, if we get done with this lecture and you or this this sermon lecture, whatever you want to call it, uh, session, and you come to me and you say, I just don't buy it. I, I I just don't buy it. I believe that we're all going to be raptured and left in, left out without underwear. We can still be friends. We really can. All right. Um, I'll pick on you some, but we can still be friends. And so this isn't an order of like we're not going to be able to worship together. Okay. But I have to pick and choose. I can't teach them all. So I'm going to walk through the amillennialist view and kind of explain it from there. So let's break in verse 1. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in the hand, of his, uh, hand, hand the key to the bottomless pit and, the, and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until a thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Now, what does that mean? From this perspective, now that sounds like it doesn't make sense, right? 
if we're in the midst of this kind of like millennial time, right? If we're in the midst of this and things are getting, you know, more precarious and, and, and we struggle more and there's more sin and more debauchery and stuff, um, how can Satan be bound at this time? How, can he be ba- how has he been bound at this moment to where he can't influence the nations? And the point that's being made here is this. We've got to look back at the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, at that point, Satan had full and complete reign. He was kind of the ruler of this earth. God had given him reign and rule on this earth. And the only people who were coming to faith were the people of Israel, okay? They were these people of Israel coming to faith. But all the other nations, if you remember, were being deceived at this time. All the Canaanites, all the Amorites, the Moabites, all of them, right? They were all being deceived during this time. So in a very real sense, Satan was deceiving the nations. But with the advent of Christ... With the advent of Christ, now the good news of Jesus Christ is now going unto all the nations, and Satan is no longer allowed or enabled to deceive the nations. Now, can he deceive individuals? Absolutely, he can deceive individuals. All right? He was trying to deceive Jesus in the wilderness. He deceives many. He deceived Judas. He, uh, he played a role, I believe, with Peter a little bit, right? Uh, So it doesn't mean that he's not active. It means that there's not this wholesale uh, deception of all the nations that's preventing the nations from coming to Christ. The gospel is going forth. Now, here's the thing. The gospel is in many, many nations as we speak. But the number, number of people groups who still have not heard the gospel, who have still not heard the gospel is almost too many to count. Now that sounds like, well, isn't Satan deceiving the nations at this time? We are still able to go with the gospel. We just don't have the manpower to do it at this point, right? So the gospel is still going forward. So Satan is bound, preventing himself from being able to deceive the nations and preventing the gospel to go forward. The gospel will go forward and it will go forward with power. And that should encourage us. That should encourage us that God is holding back Satan at this time that we can then go uh, present the good news of Jesus Christ. It would be a less encouraging uh, uh, circumstance if we felt that we were constantly being batted back by Satan, preventing us from going out to share the good news of the gospel. I dare say that that this would be true. If Satan was not bound at this time, you and I, who are not ethnic Jews, would not be believers today. But because of Christ's sacrifice, because of Him being bound at this time, preventing Him from deceiving wholesale the nations, the gospel was able to be made forward, been able to go forward and to be shared amongst the nations so that you and I might believe. And that's an important truth for us to remember. But it does say there's going to be a time where He's going to be released to, to, to wreak havoc, if you will, a little bit. And we're going to talk about what that means. Let's jump down to verse 4. It says, Then I saw, we're going to move to humanity now, okay? And so he's still this view of heaven. But it says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. 
Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, if this is true, okay, if we're in the midst of this right now and Christ is reigning and ruling, if Satan is bound, then who are these individuals who have come to life? The idea is that this first resurrection is a spiritual resurrection. That when you came to salvation in Christ, you were effectively raised from the dead. All right? If you are not a believer at this moment, at where you sit this moment, then you are essentially dead in your trespasses. That's exactly what Paul says, that you are dead. And when you get up and you start walking, if you are not saved, you are the walking dead, okay? That's just what it is. That the only way that we find life is in Christ, and that is the first resurrection. So when you are baptized, you have that beautiful picture, right? Me and Isaiah talked about this, is that when we're baptized, that we die to our sins by going under the water, being buried under the water. (coughs) And then we are raised to new life, that symbolic picture of of salvation. If you are with Christ in Christ this morning, you have experienced that first resurrection. It's not physical, but it is that first resurrection to new life. Now, the, this begs the question, then what about these individuals who've been beheaded, right? Well, this is talking about the martyrs, and most commentators believe that these individuals are the church of the whole, okay? That we all are, in a sense, martyrs for Christ, that many have been persecuted and continue, but we did not give up our place with Christ, and we did not give over to the mark of the beast, if you will. Verse 5. The rest of the dead, now these would be the unbelievers, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God, of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. And so there will be a point where the unbelievers, all right, will be raised, if you will. This does not mean they'll be saved, but there will be a point where there will be no other opportunity for salvation. The main point of this passage is this. Christ is coming, okay? Christ is coming in the second coming. And at that point, Satan is going to be... uh, Satan is already bound at this time, okay? So this is not falling in line chronologically with what we talked about last week. All right, it's a different perspective like we've been talking about in Revelation. And so this thousand years is here. There are, the gospel is going forth. People are being saved. People are, are coming to Christ. And here at the end all right, of this period, then we are going, when everybody who is in, intended to be saved is saved, then Christ will come to reap the harvest. Verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended... Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations. So that's what he's going to do. So there is going to be a point in time at the end of history, at this sort of like last hurrah, where God is going to release Satan from his chains. And he is going to come out to deceive the nations. 
That's what his aim is going to be. He's going to try to do what he was doing in the Old Testament, deceiving all the Ammonites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, all these individuals. He's coming out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And so he is gathering all these unbelievers, all right, from all across the world. And by the way, if you're curious about where this, this Gog and Magog is, if you go back and look at Ezekiel, Ezekiel talks about this in several different places, this Gog and Magog region, all right? And it's this, this notation of unbelievers, those who were against God. Satan is gathering them for this final battle. We're going to defeat God. We're going to defeat all these believers, right? So that's what his aim is. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown in the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now what does that even mean? It seems... That, in, that contrary to post-millennialists who think that everything is getting better and better and better, right? That, in fact, things are going to get progressively worse. So, biblically speaking, some of us say, Oh, I wish I could go back to the good old days, right? Well, here's the problem with that. Your good old days were full of debauchery compared to people who were before you. All right, because it's progressively getting worse and worse. And as we watch the news and as we experience life in general, I think every one of us can say that things are getting more and more out of hand. There are things that I am that I've noticed that I have to deal with in my in my professional life, even in my personal life, that I have to deal with that I would have never imagined having to deal with. 20 years ago, like if, if you had told me that I was going to have to try to negotiate terms of gender with students, like giving them the right pronoun, I would have thought you were crazy. That I couldn't just say he and she or him and her. But now that's discrimination. I would have never thought that that would have been an issue. And anybody, I mean, seriously. It's crazy, right? Twenty, years, but now it's just here. That's just way, when you read a Twitter handle. What does it say? It has their preferred pronoun in the Twitter handle, right? I'm like, does my beard not give it away? Seriously, like when I look at Derek's picture on social media, there's no question mark. All right, I'm just gonna go with him. All right, with he. That's just the way. But not today, not today. And we also see where that is causing serious issues in our society where people have warned this is going to come back to bite you and what's happening? It's coming back to bite us. And now we're having to deal with a whole bunch of issues. What appears to be happening here is that as things progressively get worse, there's going to be moment at the end of this, what I would call a symbolic thousand years, where God is going to say, okay, we're done now. We're done. The harvest is, is complete. I'm going to unchain Satan to, to let him just go, 
okay, and have his way to deceive the nations. And what Satan is going to do is he's going to surround the camp of the believers. So it's not going to get better for the church. It's going to get worse. All right, And we see that too. We see it getting worse for believers. Even in countries where we would never thought there would ever be persecution, now we're starting to see that. We're seeing it in some of the most peaceful countries in the world. Canada, all right, Christians getting persecuted. All right, you, I mean, I didn't know that they could say a naughty word in Canada, but apparently they do. And they surra- they're surrounding the camp of the believers at this point, okay? And it says, And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Sort of sim- uh, sim- very similar to Sodom and Gomorrah, Right? And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Folks, this is not symbolic. This is a physical, literal torment that the devil and his henchmen are experiencing. What I want to point out here is that the individuals that Satan has deceived to go against the people of God and God himself There is no battle. Do you notice this? It almost reminds you of Lord of the Rings where there's this massive crowd uh, there and there's going to be this massive battle. And if you haven't seen it, uh, shame on you. But if you have seen it, you know at the very end of Lord of the Rings, in the very last movie, you get all the good army, right? Uh, Frodo and all of his friends, right? And and all of them that were there. And and they're all surrounded by all these, these ogres and these orcs and all, I mean, just thousands and thousands and thousands and it looks like there's no way they're going to get out of this and all it takes is frodo tossing the ring into the pit and what happens this all gets smited and the only thing that is left are the these good soldiers right and that's what's happening here satan and his minions feel like it's going to be this major battle where they're going to win because their numbers outnumber the sands of the sea And all that happens is God just rains down fire on them and eliminates them. Folks, no one can stand against God. No one can. There's no one that can stand against God. I chuckle when I see people like actively trying to be antagonistic before the God Almighty as if they can somehow stand against Him. Have your party now because it's not going to be a party later. No one can stand against God. Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. So it's almost like he's the beginning of all things. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were open. Now, this is where I want to turn your attention, okay? The books are open. These are books that have already been written, okay? These are books that have already been written. Then another book was open, which is the book of life. If you read Daniel chapter 12, you will find this, this book of life, who was, which was written before the dawn of time. Before anything was created, this book was written. And the dead were judged by what was in, written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. 
Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in it. These were unbelievers, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. This is eternal death. This is physical, spiritual, everything right here. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, I, I want to I just spend just a few moments as we, as we conclude here this morning about this book of life, okay? Because this is the judgment that we've been, that we've been promised, all right? This entire, this entire book, and even in Matthew and in Luke and the Gospels, we've been promised this judgment that's going to occur, and here we are. We're at this judgment time that's taking place. And it says, and I saw the dead, great and small. So there's, the point there is, everyone is getting judged equally, okay? Everyone is going to be coming before this throne, and everyone is going to be judged based upon what is written in this book. The books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books and according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they were do had done. Now, if you read that, and you read that out of context, separated from the rest of the gospel, the rest of Revelation, you might think that we are saved or not saved based on our works. Because we are judged based upon what we have done. That's what the passage says. This is why it's important to read all the Bible and not just part of the Bible. Okay. But this is why it's important for us to understand the gospel. Because we understand from Ephesians, and I know a few of us in here are reading Ephesians right now, that we are not saved by our works. That we are saved by grace through faith, which is a gift. There's nothing that we do to earn our way. So what is happening here? Here's what I believe is happening here. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Unbelievers are being judged by what they have done. Unbelievers are being judged for what they have done and what they have not done. That's just clear, all right? They're going to be judged by the law. But believers, when God looks at what they have done or not done, He doesn't see your works. He doesn't see your works. And He doesn't see my works. He sees the blood of Christ. We are, I want to be very careful how I say this, we are saved by works, just not our own. We're saved by the work of Christ. Because if He doesn't accomplish that work, then there is no blood to wash away our sins. We are saved by grace, through faith, not of our own works. So what does he look at when he sees those works in that book? He's seeing the work of Jesus. 
He's seeing the work of Jesus. He sees the name of Donna, the name of Charlotte, the name of David. And those names are written in blood, in the blood of Christ. I'm going to tell you right now, I would be terrified to be an unbeliever standing before the throne, having God looking upon my works to determine whether or not I get eternal life or not. I'd be mortified. I, I'm mortified. I am mortified to know that God knows what I've done. I'm mortified to know that God knows what I think sometimes. You ever had one of those thoughts cross your mind? I can't believe that even crossed my mind, but it did. It did cross your mind. Why? Because you're human. You're human, and you're still sinful. But praise God, that's not what God is looking at. He's looking at Christ. He's looking at what Christ has done. Because all these believers are no better than unbelievers in dignity or value. The only thing that makes them different is Jesus. I know some believers who have done some horrible, horribly rotten things. And we look at individuals and we kind of scoff at these kind of death row confessions, don't we? We scoff at them. We see these individuals on death row or in prison for life, and then we scoff at them. We were watching a movie last night, our show last night, and somebody was talking about how an individual uh, had found God, and they kind of scoffed at it. Now, that doesn't mean that somebody's not going to be paying the, the earthly penalty for their crimes. But folks, Paul was a murderer. That thief on the cross, or that criminal, I should say, on the cross, who knows what he's done, but he was sentenced to death. But today he will be with Christ in paradise. We should never scoff at someone coming to Christ even on death row, because the, the, the power of the gospel has the power to save no matter where you are. In that song that I shared with you this morning, early, it says, no, it says, don't worry, no one's too far gone. And I believe that because that's what the Bible teaches. No one is too far gone for the hand of Christ to save. We get so caught up in where the millennium is coming and, and when Christ is coming in reference to the millennium and are those locusts really Apache helicopters? I mean, all that kind of stuff, right? We get so caught up into that. But the main point of this whole thing is, is your name written in the book of life? That's what we really need to be asking. Who cares when the millennium is? Who really cares when Christ is coming? We know that He's coming. Praise God. The real question is, is your name written in the book of life? Are you saved? Have you been saved? Verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Folks, we try to make that symbolic 
so often, God surely would not do that, would not punish somebody for eternity. Even though Christ talks more about hell than he does in does heaven. He warns us over and over and over. I've also heard individuals saying, well, we, we shouldn't use hell as a scare tactic for people to come to Christ. Why not? Jesus did. There will be torment. There will be gnashing of teeth. There will be outer darkness. All of these things. Folks, the problem with us making this a symbolic place, a metaphorical thing, is that it doesn't have any teeth. As I, as I wrap up, we've been talking right now at the university about class attendance, trying to get our students to attend, you know, and it turns out that when we were looking for our attendance policy at the university, no one could find it. There wasn't an attendance policy to be found. And I said, because I'm ahead of one of the committees that's doing this work, and I said, how in the world can we enforce attendance if there is no policy, right? And furthermore, how can I enforce a policy and make students afraid of that policy if the policy doesn't have any teeth? It needs to have teeth. How are we to preach and teach about heaven that is a real place if we're talking about hell as if it's just metaphorical. A metaphorical hell doesn't have any teeth. But folks, there is gnashing of teeth. There is eternal torment. There is eternal punishment. Some scholars, especially towards the end of their life, there have been a few, very prominent scholars, mind you, that towards the end of their life, they came to a conclusion where eventually individuals in hell would just cease to exist. That a loving God would not allow for eternal torment and that eventually those individuals in hell would just cease to exist. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that it's eternal punishment. That there is no end. And that is the just punishment for not being in Christ and for our sin. So this morning, I just, I, I just want to encourage you. I want to encourage you this morning, number one, that if you are a believer, if you are a believer this morning, your name has been written, written in that book of life from, the, from before there was time. If you are not a believer yet, I encourage you to repent and believe. Repent and believe to assure yourself that your name is written in that book of life. And then go to the work of sharing the gospel. Go in the work of growing in Christ. Go to the work of leading others to believe in Jesus so they too might experience this first resurrection that John is teaching us in this book. There's so much to look forward to, and there's no reason to wait. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, Father, for your word, even the difficult parts. 
And Father, thank you for that book of life that believers' names are inscribed. Thank you for the blood of Jesus. And thank you for the cross. Be with us now as we respond to the gospel. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.